The following message is made available for you by Emanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emanuelmora.com. But 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 36. And if you uh, would follow along with me in your Bibles, uh, this is what, uh, what God's Word says. A man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Didn't I reveal myself to your forefathers' family when they were in Egypt and belonged to Pharaoh's palace? Out of all the tribes of Israel, I chose your house to be my priests, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your forefathers' family all the Israelite fire offerings. Why then do you despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship? You have honored your sons more than me by making yourself fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people Israel. Therefore, this is the declaration of the Lord, the God of Israel. I did say that your family and your forefathers' family would walk before me forever. But now, this is the Lord's declaration, no longer. For those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me, who despise me will be disgraced. Look, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your forefather's house so that none in your family will reach old age. You will see distress in the place of worship in spite of all that is good in Israel and no one in your family will ever again reach old age. Any man from your family I do not cut off from my altar will bring grief and sadness to you. All your descendants will die violently. This will be the sign that will come to you concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Both of them will die on the same day. Then I will raise up a faithful priest for myself. He will do whatever is in my heart and mind. I will establish a lasting dynasty for him, and he will walk before my anointed, uh, my anointed one for all time. Anyone who is left in your family will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread. He will say, please appoint me to some priestly office so I can have a piece of bread to eat. Let's pray. Father, um, this is a tough text for us to, uh, to take as uh, it, it speaks a lot of your judgment, but Lord, there's also hope in here. And so, Father, I pray that... Uh, in light of everything that we see in this text, that we would see the, the light and the hope of the gospel that is found in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. The effects of fame don't go easy on many people. We see it in the headlines all the time from Hollywood. There are many celebrities, both children and adults, who start their careers off with, uh, with very promising uh, potential and seeming humility and maybe even down-to-earth natures. And soon, however, as their movies and their television shows, maybe their, their music careers start uh, taking off and the money starts to flow in, uh, so the, the pride in the heart begins to grow and the sense of entitlement and the sense of importance uh, rises with their fame. And for many, the, uh, the temptation to take advantage of their fame 
uh, is too much to bear. And we end up with people like, like Harvey Weinstein, who is the, the former Hollywood producer who used his influence and his, his status and importance to con young actresses into believing that, uh, that in order for their careers to advance, then uh, they had to uh, uh, give him sexual favors. And he's now in prison serving a 23-year sentence as a sex offender. And all of us have, have tragically seen child star after child star unable to cope with the pressure and the lifestyle that, that fame and wealth brings. And it's not just in Hollywood either. Uh, in social media, there is now this influx of, of people called influencers. And if you don't know who an influencer is, an influencer is someone who markets themselves to a certain extent on social media that they gain an enormous amount of followers behind them. Uh, and then they are then able to influence those people's lives. They usually have niche markets, whether it be uh, culture or fashion or photography or video games or sports. And yes, there are influencers even in the theology world. It seems everybody wants to be an influencer these days, but they rarely see the cost of being an influencer. Some of them do make huge amounts of money, but let's not forget how they, how many of them have used and abused the system. I read an article this week about how uh, a influencer from Instagram called up a five-star hotel and said, hey, I will mention you in one of my videos if you will give me free accommodations for, for a week. In which they told her to take a hike. The church is not immune either to this. There's one mega pastor that you would instantly recognize if I gave you his name. But he was a pastor that convinced his church to pay a marketing firm $217,000 in order to buy 11,000 copies of his book so that he could manipulate the New York Times bestseller list to make it look like he was a best-selling author. I could give you more examples, but I think you get the point that being in a position of influence and power wields a certain amount of temptation that is dangerous for themselves and for those that are under them. And over the past few weeks, we have seen uh, this taking place in two historical figures that are priests in Israel named Hophni and Phinehas. Their dad, Eli, was the high priest during this time, which was known for moral anarchy, there was no king in the land. Everybody just sort of did what they wanted, including the priests. And their actions as priests for the nation had less to do with helping people, reconciling the relationships of them and their families to God, but rather they used the priestly office to fill their bellies and fulfill their, their, their bodily appetites. And in our text today, we're going to find out what happens when God says, enough, I'm done. And we're going to see that it isn't just a historical recounting, but it's very practical for you and for me in our everyday lives. Though it's not a happy text, we're going to find that there is hope, even when we've fallen into the traps of our sinful nature, and there's hope even when the darkest part of us has been exposed and we're left without excuse. And so the first thing we need to take note of is that we should highly esteem God's grace. Highly esteem God's grace. If there's one uh, 
set of verses that helps us summarize what is happening here in this passage. It would be from Galatians chapter 6, which reads, Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the teacher. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap, because of the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So perhaps Paul here had 1 Samuel chapter 2 in mind when he wrote this, because in our little vignette here, in observing Hophni and Phinehas, uh, they are making a career out of mocking God. If you recall from our time last week, there were three major ways in which they were making a mockery of God. Uh, in verses 12 through 14, it uh, tells us that they were stealing the holy sacrifices from everyday average people. Verses 15 through 16 describe how they were actually stealing from God by taking the raw meat, especially the fattened raw meat, which was meant for God, and taking it for themselves. And then in verse 22, the author details how they defiled the uh, sanctuary by engaging in an intercourse in the holy places with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And now Eli, as the high priest, had the authority to remove them from their office and restore order and holiness among the people and as their father, he had the authority to discipline, from, to discipline them for their actions. But as we saw, we got a vision of his weak leadership. And we see that all he was was talk. All he did was tell his sons that their, their actions were evil. And all these rumors that are flying about in, uh, around town, they just simply weren't good. And that was that. And just keep on keeping on. And then we're left with a commentary in verse 25. That's chilling to read. But they would not listen to their father because or since the Lord intended to kill them. That is, they had rejected God and made a mockery of him for so long that they were no longer capable of obeying their father and repenting to the Lord because God was going to make an end of them. And now in, in verse 27, a man shows up here. He has absolutely no identity other than being labeled as a man of God. And this would be the first time in the Old Testament that, that I could find anyway that such a man shows up and does what he does. Other men in, in Scripture uh, are called seers or prophets. And here this is a, it was one of them. They are gifted by the Holy Spirit to speak the very words of God. Usually they are declarations of judgment or they are declarations of blessing. And here is a declaration of judgment. Now imagine being in the quiet temple like right now, it's very quiet in the church. And imagine someone walking into church you'd never seen before. Walking right up to the priest. The one who was supposed to be holy. And he makes a beeline to Eli. And the opening words would have commanded attention. It says, thus says 
Yahweh. This is what God says, and he begins with a rhetorical question in verse 27. So didn't I reveal myself to your forefather's family when they were in Egypt and belonged to Pharaoh's palace? He's obviously talking about Aaron, who is, uh, who is Moses' brother, and who's, uh, whose descendants would be priests to, to God perpetually. And the obvious answer is yes. Everyone would have said that. And he goes on in verse 28 to remind Eli of the job description of a priest. Out of all the tribes of Israel, I chose your house to be my priests, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your forefather's family all the Israelite food offerings. And every one of these characteristics here is crucial to understand what God is, 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 is leading up to here. As priests, they were to um, offer up these sacrifices because it was only through them that God's people could be forgiven. The sacrifices are the means of God's grace. Now, in college, I spent a year as an RA, and the only per, uh, purpose that I found for incense was for some of the residents to cover up the smell of their narcotics. But apparently here, there was a religious part of what the incense was for. The incense was very uh, uh, important to intercessory prayer. And the ephod that he's wearing here is interesting in this context. The ephod he's talking about is not one like Samuel would wear, but rather one like the high priest would wear. And on this ephod, it would have had on the front of him 12 stones. And on every stone, it would have had engraved a different tribe of Israel. So that when the priest went before God at the altar, he was representing every person and every tribe in the nation. And where the leader goes... So go the people. Now that those friendly reminders were given to Eli, God lays out the important questions here. The one that Eli has to answer, but can't in verse 29. Why then do you despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship? You have honored your sons more than me. By making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people Israel. And it's here that God lays out the indictment. God has given Eli and his ancestors, going back to Aaron and Eli's sons, the privilege of serving God and his people. He had chosen them to be administrators of his grace. And yet he gets to the heart. They despise the means of grace God has provided. Quite literally, the text says that they have kicked it. You don't kick precious things down the road. You kick rocks. You kick cans. You kick garbage. You kick worthless things, but not holy things. And further, Eli has, has dishonored God by esteeming his sons, who were scoundrels more than God. They have become what James would one day say in James chapter 5, 
Verse 5, that you have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And perhaps James had this very uh, story in mind when he wrote those words. And many of us are falling into this same trap every single day and perhaps without even realizing it. Instead of esteeming uh, God and his grace and remembering his mercy to us, that everything that we have and everything that we are take is a gift from him, we go on living as if he doesn't exist. Friends, you don't have to be a confessing atheist to live like God doesn't exist. There are plenty of people in churches every single week that are living as if God doesn't exist. We fail to acknowledge him, and, and instead we esteem other people's opinions or the culture's opinions as higher. We believe that money is more important than worship. We believe that sports is more important than church. We believe that safety is more important than God's provision and plan, that fun is more important than holiness, that entertainment is more important than knowing God. God's word and his will. And if we're not willing to do the hard work in our hearts that Eli should have done in himself and then taught his sons to do, well then James 5.5 5 might be true for us as well. That is, unless we radically turn our hearts to God and highly esteem his grace and his goodness. In Jesus. Second, we should heed the warnings. Heed the warnings. This man of God now turns from indictment toward the sentence. Look at verse 30. Therefore, this is the declaration of the Lord, the God of Israel. I did say that your family and your forefathers' family would walk before me forever. But now, this is the Lord's declaration. In other words, I'm not just saying this. This is what God says. No longer. For those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disgraced. Now, that last phrase should sound very familiar to any of us who have uh, read through uh, Genesis, especially in the narratives about Abraham. Abraham, if you remember, he was a pagan sun and moon worshiper that was called out by God uh, from basically the, ba the Babylonian area to go into the land of Canaan and to start a people that is set apart from God. And this is what he said to Abraham. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I will bless those. Here's where it is. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. Now remember, the, the principle here is that God will not be mocked. And this promise to Abraham is that he was the representative of God at the time, and whether it's geopolitical or whether it is individualistic, God will not be mocked doesn't matter if you're a high priest or if you're president of the United States or if you're uh, the president of Russia or if you are a custodian or if you're a school teacher. God will not be mocked. And ironically, here it is the high priest who has mocked and cursed God. 
And now God is again going to show that he's good in his word. Look at verse 31. The days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your forefather's family so that none in your family will reach old age. You will see distress in the place of worship. In spite of all that is good in Israel, and no one in your family will ever again reach old age. Any man from your family I do not cut off from my altar will bring grief and sadness to you. All your descendants will die violently. Wow. Would you want God saying that to you? If there's anything that we should take from this as a surface level reading is that God's not messing around here. He's not going to pull the I'm just kidding, this is on candid camera thing. God is very serious about sin. And the English tones it down a bit here. The word for strength is, is also the same word for arm. And so God is saying, I'm going to cut off your arm. I'm going to cut off your strength so you can't even reach out and do the things that you are even supposed to be doing. He is going to utterly cut off the rest of Eli's family from being priests forever. Look at verse uh, well, 33, it's a hard verse to translate because it's dependent on how you interpret it. But I think the ESV actually gets it right here um, because it seems best to believe that, not talking about uh, uh, Eli, but someone that is coming. In the ESV it says, The only one of, of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And I think this is related to a guy named Abiathar, someone who won't show up until chapter 22. And we'll come back to him here in just a moment. But notice that all of this stuff here happens in the future, after Eli's gone. And if you're Eli... And if you're in a wicked mindset like this, it would be really easy to say, Meh. okay, well, if I, won't, if I won't see it with my own eyes, then who cares? Let me die in peace and whatever. But like an infomercial, the man of God says, wait, there's, there's more. Verse 34. This will be the sign that will come to you concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Names them, calls them out. Both of them will die on the same day. His attention. The proof of all of this is going to be that Eli will experience the death of his sons. I don't care how Losing one son would be traumatic enough. Losing two on the same day? Unbelievable. No one wants to see that. And if we want to be careful readers of Scripture and sensitive to what spirit, the Spirit is saying, we ought to approach such a text with Psalm 139 in view where he says, Search me, God, and know my heart. 
Test me and know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Our sin can blind us. We ought to come away with this not being ashamed of the cultural taboo that God hates sin and that He punishes sin. He's a God of justice. Unlike Eli, He will not just stand and just be nice to Hophni and Phinehas. We need to be mindful of the fact that even if we're sitting in a church and maybe regularly do, Peter tells us in 1 Peter, he says, for the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who disobey the gospel of God? So Eli and his sons have forgotten that fact, or they have rather traded it for the much more palpable lie that God sees sin as trivial, that he really doesn't care. But Paul tells us in Acts 17 that God has set a day in which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man that he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising this man from the dead. So what do we do? Because left to ourselves, we, none of us would be spared. So we do what verses 35 through 36 tell us, which is to hold fast to God's rescue plan. Hold fast to God's rescue plan. In December of 2006, Julie and I were able to go on a Caribbean cruise for, for a week, and the trip was fabulous, but one of the most uh, interesting uh, parts about the cruise was the safety and rescue plan rehearsal that happened on the first night. It was a night in which uh, the entire cruise ship had to be at certain parts, uh, uh, had to be at a, p a specific part, and uh, we had to have uh, specific life jackets. There were specific pods uh, that were accessed. Jim, did I put a picture of us on there? Look at those two kids right there, huh? About a year and a half being married, no kids yet. I don't think we look any different, right? But there are particular lifeboats that we were assigned to. There were instructions that we needed to know and follow because if in the event that this ship would go down like the Titanic, these plans would spare the most amount of lives possible, theoretically. Now, the reality of sin is that every one of our lives is a sinking ship. We've all disregarded God's will and His way, and we've traded Him for our own will and our own ways. We have deceived ourselves into believing that we know better than God, and we've ordered our lives as such. We may say that we believe in God, but when it comes down to it, the only God that we follow is the one that we see in the mirror every day. But when we recognize that we have hit a major iceberg and that this ship is going down, there's a rescue plan available. And it's found here in verses 35 and 36, but in order to take hold of it, we need to do a little bit of biblical excavation first. Uh, here the prophet continues his words to Eli. He says, Then I will raise up a faithful priest for myself. He will do whatever's in my heart and my mind. I will establish a lasting dynasty for him, and he will walk before my anointed one for all time. 
And so in the midst of all of these warnings and all of this bad news here, he delivers some good news. Maybe not good news for Eli, but certainly good news for God's people who had been under such corrupt leadership for so long. Eli's family priesthood, it's over. And the replacement is, interestingly, not starting with a family, but an individual person. And it would be easy to assume that, um, given the context of this, that we're talking about Samuel. Although we're not talking about Samuel here. The answer requires us to know a little bit about how to interpret Old Testament prophecy. And in Old Testament prophecy, you have to see that there are a few different levels of fulfillment. There is an immediate fulfillment. There's sort of a fulfillment in, uh, you know, a time span that would come. And then there is an ultimate fulfillment. The immediate fulfillment will happen in 1 Samuel chapter 4. When Hophni and Phinehas indeed do die in battle. And upon hearing the news, Eli falls over in his chair, breaks his neck, and dies as well. But there were some relatives of this line that continued in the priesthood. And in 1 Samuel 22, King Saul would order the slaughter of 85 priests at a little place called Nob. Only one would survive. It was a guy named Abiathar, and he would go on to be King David's priest. And he would last until 1 Kings chapter 2, when King Solomon would banish Abiathar from the priesthood. We see uh, that in 1 Kings chapter 2, uh, verse 27, where it says, Solomon banished Abiathar from the Lord's priest, and it fulfilled the Lord's prophecy that he had spoken at Shiloh against Eli's family. And it's here, once Eli's house has finally come to pass, that 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 35 tells us that Solomon appointed Zadok in Abiathar's place. And if you look upon Old Testament history, you see that the Zadokites then become sort of the, the chief priestly order from then on. But was this God's rescue plan? That they would be saved by Zadok the priest. Not by a long shot. There is still an ultimate fulfillment of the priest who will do whatever is in God's uh, heart and mind. That will walk before the Lord for all time. Ultimately, this text is pointing towards Jesus. In Jesus, we have a priest that doesn't come from the line of Eli. In Jesus, we don't have a priest that is self-serving and willing to throw God's command uh, aside to fill his body and satisfy his, his bodily appetites. In Jesus, we have a high priest who is willing to go into the temple where holy things are and turn over the tables when people are using God's holy place as a place of commerce. In Jesus, we have a high priest who in Hebrews chapter 2 tells us became like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful high priest who cared about his people in matters pertaining to God and to make atonement for the sins of his people. Hebrews chapter 4 informs us that he was able to sympathize with our weakness. 
That he just wasn't some far-off person that doesn't get what real life is like. But he understands it because he was tempted in every way like we are. So in Jesus, he was not only to faithfully execute the sacrifice and bring us back to God. He was the sacrifice himself. Hebrews chapter 5 tells us that during his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he, was, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so in Christ, we have a priest who doesn't wear an ephod with all of the gems on his chest, but rather Isaiah would end up telling us that this is a priest who has our names written on his hands. In Eli's time, the people of God had to year after year after year bring animal sacrifices to be forgiven. But on his, in his death on the cross, Jesus provided the once and for all sacrifice of his blood shed for us. In his resurrection, he proved the victory and gave us hope for new life. And now, because he is the priest and the sacrifice, we can receive forgiveness through faith. Jesus' sacrifice doesn't happen in a weekly basis in the Eucharist. It happened 2,000 years ago, once and for all, for you and for me. And the Bible tells us that this is given to us freely by God's grace and is received by faith. And how do you cling then to this rescue plan? You trust in Christ. You give him your heart. You trust him as you would a life preserver or a lifeboat. And it's only through faith in him that rescue is possible. So put away your sin and put on Christ. You know, under most circumstances, the vision of a, of a setting sun is a beautiful thing. But in a real sense, this text is showing us that two suns were setting, and the entire house is going with them. It's a tragic reminder that shows us the dangers of hands-off parenting and the results of ignoring God's holiness. And the goal for us is to look at this. To look at ourselves and then look to the cross and trust. It is the Son of God who will never set into the, into the night but is always shining brightly for us to find life. Let's pray.